Hello, and welcome to the January 2017 episode of the LGBT Law Notes podcast. Happy New Year to all of our listeners. I am Matt Skinner, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of Greater New York. With me, as always, is Professor Art Leonard of New York Law School, the Chief Editor and Writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal and legislative developments affecting the LGBT community here and abroad. First up this month, the go-to Texas Federal District Court Judge for Nationwide Injunctions Against the Obama Administration, Judge Reed O'Connor, got one more in under the wire before the end of the year. Can you tell us about it, Art? Yes. This one involved the Affordable Care Act, commonly known as Obamacare, uh, one of the major uh, achievements of the Obama administration, which is expected to be repealed in some way over the next few years by the Republican Congress. And uh, President-elect Trump, who has said it's a total disaster, got to repeal it right away. Uh, Some people in the Senate are saying, no, maybe we should repeal it now, but not to take effect for a few more years so we can put something in its place. Others are saying we should put off doing anything on it until we know what we're going to put in its place. And uh, Trump says, right away, put something in its place. But first they have to develop it. Uh, The problem is the, uh, the procedure that they want to use to start putting this in motion in order to avoid the possibility of a filibuster is to put it in a budget resolution uh, that would only require a majority vote, but that can only pertain to certain financial aspects of Obamacare and I don't think would affect the anti-discrimination provision that we're about to talk about. That would come later. So at any rate, uh, when Congress uh, passed the Affordable Care Act, they included a provision prohibiting discrimination uh, by health care providers who are receiving funds uh, under the Affordable Care Act, uh, applies to doctors, applies to hospitals, and so forth. And the discrimination uh, provisions uh, were incorporated by reference to other statutes. And one of them was Title IX of the Education Amendments, which we've been talking about because the Education Department and the Justice Department have interpreted the ban on sex discrimination under Title IX to include discrimination because of gender identity. And litigation is going on at all levels, including at the Supreme Court, over whether under Title IX schools must accommodate uh, transgender students who wish to use restroom and locker room facilities consistent with their gender identity. So the Supreme Court has granted cert on a case from the Fourth Circuit that's pending there. They haven't scheduled argument yet because the briefing is just wrapping up. Uh, So we'll see if they schedule an argument soon. At any rate, the Affordable Care Act incorporates Title IX uh, by reference, uh, including all of the sex discrimination provisions of Title IX. Uh, And after the uh, Education Department and the Justice Department had taken a position in that pending case that's now before the Supreme Court, uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, which was drafting new regulations to implement the anti-discrimination provisions under Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, followed suit in their uh, interpretation and said that uh, recipients of funds, those subject to regulation under the Affordable Care Act, may not discriminate based on gender identity. Uh, and there is some contention in the litigation that we're talking about now about whether that means that healthcare providers and hospitals must perform 
gender transition procedures or whether there is any kind of opt-out, for example, for those who have religious objections or other objections to doing so. Uh, so in any event, uh, this new regulation was published last spring. Uh, it was supposed to go into effect on January 1st. It uh, covered both uh, gender identity and abortion procedures as a matter of interpreting the sex discrimination provision. And uh, a bunch of states and a bunch of religiously identified medical associations, associations of uh, doctors and hospitals, uh, went into federal district court in the Northern District of Texas, the satellite office in Wichita Falls, where there is only one judge who comes out from Fort Worth a few days a week, uh, Judge Reed O'Connor, who, as we've described him in this newsletter, has a propensity to issue injunctions against the Obama administration, nationwide injunctions. Uh, This this is obvious forum shopping. Uh, In August... Judge O'Connor issued a preliminary injunction in a state brought by – in a suit brought by the state of Texas and a whole bunch of other states in joining the Education Department, the Justice Department, and any other entities of the federal government from enforcing Title IX in gender identity cases uh, pending a, a final ruling on the merits. He held that uh, the view that the sex discrimination ban in Title IX forbids gender identity discrimination – is not consistent with the statute, not consistent with the statutory language, not authorized by the statute beyond the uh, competency or jurisdiction of these agencies to adopt such an interpretation and apply. Uh, His injunction, of course, is only against the government, which was the only defendant in the case. It doesn't stop individuals from filing Title IX cases, raising these claims, and they continue to be filed around the country. But it uh, it stops the department from initiating new ones or initiating new investigations. Uh, so now he's faced with, among other things, the same issue of gender identity. I mean, the the opinion also addresses abortion, but I'm not going to talk about that here. That would take us too far afield. But on the gender identity aspect of it, uh, on December 31st, at the very 11th hour, Judge O'Connor issues his preliminary injunction. In this case citing to and quoting from his earlier decision from August, uh, saying that uh, his interpretation of Title IX hasn't changed since then. And since Title IX is incorporated by reference in the ACA, he uses the same interpretation here. He sort of extracts out of context words and phrases to illustrate his view that when Congress adopted Title IX, they were intending to ban discrimination against men because they were men or women because they were women, and not against people because of their gender identity. Uh, He uh, didn't go along with the idea that the sex stereotyping theory that's been developed under Title VII should be used, uh, as it has been by courts in Title VII cases, to protect transgender people from employment discrimination under Title VII. Uh, He said the statute that's incorporated by reference in the ACA is Title IX, not Title VII which is a bit disingenuous because courts construing Title IX have said that Title IX's ban on sex discrimination is traditionally and customarily construed to be identical to Title VII's ban on sex discrimination. So, you know, all of these sort of interrelate in the sense that various federal statutes prohibit discrimination because of sex. 
uh, the Fair Housing Act, for example, Title VII, the Affordable Care Act. There are others, say, the Fair Credit Act. You know, so uh, the phrase because of sex should have the same interpretation, or at least the argument is made since the words are the same, should have the same interpretation wherever it's used in federal law. And so if a theory of covering gender identity is developed under Title VII, it's appropriate for the enforcers of Title IX to adopt it, for the enforcers of the uh, Equal Credit Opportunity Act, the Fair Housing Act, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but uh, Judge O'Connor constructs a silo here, and he says, forget about Title VII, not relevant. Just look at Title IX. I've already interpreted Title IX in my prior preliminary injunction decision. Therefore, I'm going to apply it here. Uh, so we get a national injunction uh, against the Department of Health and Human Services and any other entity of the federal government that might have enforcement authority over the Affordable Care Act. Uh, they may not uh, put into effect this new regulation. And one of the arguments that the uh, the religious healthcare institutions in particular were making, uh, which in this case includes the lead plaintiff Franciscan Alliance, uh, an organization of Catholic uh, doctors, uh, they say that this regulation will require us to modify the services we provide. And the way they interpret it, uh, let's say that uh, the insurance covers hysterectomies for women who need a hysterectomy because they uh, have a, a problem with the internal plumbing that needs fixing. Uh, so a hysterectomy involves removal and sterilization. Uh, well, people identified as, male, as female at birth who want to transition to male, a hysterectomy is part of the transition process. Well, are they entitled to get a hysterectomy the same way that a female-identified person who, who is identified at birth as female gets a hysterectomy? Is it discrimination based on sex or gender identity, uh, as uh, the ACA has now been interpreted in this regulation, to deny the hysterectomy in the case of transition? Similarly for a mastectomy. Is it uh, gender identity discrimination to refuse to perform a mastectomy for someone identified as a woman at birth who is transitioning to male? Uh, I think many of the, of the issues come up with that direction of transition where you can show that there's a procedure that is commonly performed for women and here's a woman, someone identified at birth as a woman who wants that procedure performed as part of their transition to a male gender identity. So... On a practical level, uh, a lot of what you read about uh, when when a transgender person, you know, is trying to get these procedures, is they talk to other people who've had it done and find someone who is friendly and familiar, and uh, there, you know, there's people that are sort of well known within the transgender community for performing these kind of procedures. So I think one thing that's just odd about this is that there's not a lot of trans people trying to convince surgeons to perform these highly no. sensitive surgeries they go against to people, their will. They go to people who specialize exactly. in the issue. And you're not going to find people who specialize in this issue at a Catholic hospital, yes. for example. Uh, but uh, the argument is made, and the argument is also made on behalf of the state plaintiffs here, uh, that they're going to be required to spend money because the ACA applies to the Medicaid program. Yep. They're going to be required to spend money on procedures that their state law and their state regulations don't authorize them to spend money on. 
Uh, and this is part of the reason why in balancing the factors for a preliminary injunction, Judge O'Connor says, well, if they have to start spending money as of January 1st on procedures that the state doesn't want to do, then there's an immediate injury if I don't issue a preliminary injunction. Right. Uh, so he went through the factors and uh, he issued his preliminary injunction. Uh, so that regulation is blocked from taking effect. Now, whether that makes a difference, if the Republicans plan to repeal the ACA wholesale. But uh, we should know. We will get a new HHS secretary, although yes, I have read some things that, that Tom Price might be the one uh, cabinet nomination that they, we might get away with stopping because of some things he said about Medicare that make him really radioactive. But Well, we'll see. Uh, the uh, 538.com website, which does statistical analyses of things, uh, this uh, a few days ago they published a table showing the rate of disapproval of presidential cabinet appointments, and it's virtually zero. Uh, I mean, usually what happens is if someone gets controversial, they withdraw the name and it doesn't come to a vote. It's yeah. very rare. There's only been a handful of cases in the entire history of the United States where a cabinet nomination has actually been voted down by the Senate. Very, very unusual. Uh, but who knows? Uh, the Obama uh, first-term cabinet appointments, several of them ran into problems and were withdrawn, uh, but only one, I think, was voted down. We should add, I mean, the good thing, uh, one positive thing here is that this is a full fully published regulation. It was not just a dear colleague letter as in, in right. the education department context. Right. This would have to be more complicated to unwind. And, and also, it's more than six months old. And that's important because the Republicans in Congress now are considering passing a statute that would allow Congress to revoke by vote, by majority vote in Congress with the president approving, of course, any regulation published in the previous six months before this uh, statute is adopted. And uh, this regulation, I think, was published in the Federal Register back in May of uh, 2016, so it's already more than six months old, so it can't be revoked under that authority. Uh, and uh, I uh, understand that an appeal will be filed uh, by the Justice Department from this preliminary injunction. I know the ACLU is looking to intervene. I yeah. did read that. So in order to appeal. To, yeah. In order to appeal. Because the Justice Department is going to change hands shortly, and they may not want to appeal. Uh, and this goes back to that Gloucester County case uh, out of the Fourth Circuit that is now before the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, that case poses two questions to the court. Uh, one is whether the federal district court should have deferred to the Education Department's interpretation of its regulation on restroom access in public schools. The, uh, uh, the regulation says that schools can have separate restrooms for male and female students and staff, but they have to be of equal quality and equal accessibility. They have to be equal restrooms. It's a separate but equal rule. And uh, the education department has interpreted this as not presenting any barrier to the idea of requiring educational institutions to allow people to use the restroom consistent with their gender identity. They say that doesn't interfere with your ability to have male and female designated restrooms. It's just about who gets to use them. And that's left ambiguous by the regulation, uh, which doesn't address it in any way, shape, or form on its face, transgender. Uh, and therefore, the agency can interpret it to decide what's consistent with the mandate against sex discrimination. 
Uh, and on that basis, the Fourth Circuit said we have an ambiguous regulation with respect to this issue, so we go with the agency's interpretation if it's a reasonable interpretation of the statute. So the question for the Supreme Court, first of all, should they have deferred? Is the regulation ambiguous? Uh, Judge O'Connor said no in his decision in August issuing the preliminary injunction. He thinks it's clear on its face. Uh, the Fourth Circuit thinks it's ambiguous. And so that's the first question on which the Supreme Court granted cert. The second question is whether, as a matter of statutory interpretation, Title IX can be interpreted to extend to gender identity. Uh, now, it's possible that if the incoming Education Department leadership revokes the interpretation that they had uh, put forward, uh, then there's nothing to defer to. <laughs> and it turns out that it's a question of first impression for the Fourth Circuit to decide, since they, I don't think they have prior case law in the First Circuit, Fourth Circuit on this. So the Supreme Court might decide that the first question before them has been mooted and the second question hasn't really been considered appropriately by the Fourth Circuit because they were just passing on whether the agency had a reasonable interpretation. They weren't providing a de novo interpretation of the statutory language to see whether it covered the situation. So it's very possible the Supreme Court will boot the case back to the Fourth Circuit without deciding it. I think another scary scenario is that they keep the case and they do uh, Bowers v. Hardwick for the trans community. That's possible. We we have no idea what Justice Kennedy thinks about transgender issues, and we actually don't know what any of them think about transgender issues because so far the only case involving transgender issues that the Supreme Court decided on the merits was a prison case from long ago about protecting transgender prisoners from assault. Uh, and that goes back to uh, the 1990s. So we have no recent expression by the Supreme Court, certainly not since we've had a revolution in the federal courts on transgender law issues. Right. Uh, so, the, so we have no idea what the Supreme Court may do with this case, regardless of who's on it and who might get appointed to fill the Scalia seat and who might get appointed to fill uh, subsequent vacancies that might come up. And President-elect Trump has not announced yet who the new Solicitor General will be. It'll be interesting to see if that's someone uh, who's... It's my understanding is it's going to be Kellyanne Conway's husband. I know he's in the mix, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they, that's one of the names that was put forward. He's a, a litigation partner in a major law firm. Yeah. So we'll see. All right, we will take a short break, and when we return, we'll change gears and discuss an Arkansas Supreme Court decision that Obergefell does not mean that the state can't continue to treat married opposite-sex couples preferentially when it comes to birth certificates. We are back discussing Smith v. Pavin, a disappointing 4-3 Arkansas Supreme Court decision from last month. I wrote about it for the January issue, and we'll summarize it now. Uh, <clears throat> this involves uh, the Arkansas Department of Health, uh, pursuant to its obligations to produce birth certificates for children born in Arkansas. Uh, there are some gendered language uh, in the statutes in Arkansas involving birth certificates, and an issue arose uh, last year involving uh, married lesbian uh, couples uh, using artificial insemination to get uh, pregnant. And then uh, when after the baby was born, uh, an issue arose as to whether the spouse of those uh, birth mothers would be listed on the birth certificates as parents. Now, if you are a straight married couple in Arkansas, 
who uses uh, artificial insemination or a donor, um, this is not uh, an issue for you. The state uh, recognizes that situation and automatically lists the intended parents, not necessarily the biological parents in that situation. So the Arkansas, uh, but the Arkansas Department of Health read the state statutes uh, in question here and saw the words husband and wife uh, and said, whoa, we cannot list uh, the spouses of birth mothers in a lesbian situation. And uh, so three married lesbian couples sued uh, the director of the Arkansas Department of Health, Dr. Nathaniel Smith. Uh, folks will probably recognize his name as the defendant in the state's marriage litigation a couple of years ago. And uh, they got a positive decision from, they call it a circuit court in Arkansas, but it's essentially the trial court in Arkansas, who agreed with them that this is an unconstitutional uh, situation in Arkansas post-Obergefell. He also looked at the final order in uh, the state's marriage litigation, which is was known as Smith v. Wright. There was a final order in 2015. 2014 that later got uh, affirmed after Obergefell by the state Supreme Court when they dismissed the case uh, that said, listen, every statute uh, that involves marriage in Arkansas is covered by, is arguably covered by this order because it said everything in Arkansas that, that does not recognize same-sex marriage is struck down uh, and enjoined. Um, so he said that that covered this situation. He also said post-Obergefell that this is clearly unconstitutional. So he ordered um, the state agency to stop doing this, and he ordered uh, revised birth certificates uh, in the three specific uh, cases that were before him. And and since he's one of the few judges we're talking about in the podcast who actually did something right, <laughs> we should not leave him anonymous. It's Pulaski County Circuit Judge Timothy Davis Fox. That's correct. Uh, but the agency did, uh, they didn't get a stay. So these three birth certificates are correct and uh, can't be changed back. But uh, they did, a, the agency did appeal the merits of the case to the state Supreme Court. And uh, in December on, uh, let's see, what was the date? December 8th. December 8th, the uh, Arkansas Supreme Court released their decision, which was 4-3, that uh, reversing the circuit court on the merits here of the case. So starting, and I'll list the, the Arkansas justice's name who wrote the opinion was Josephine Linker Hart. Um, she saw basically this case entirely differently from uh, Judge Fox. And at every point in her analysis, she points out that marriage and uh, birth certificates are completely separate and that it was totally improper to conflate uh, the rights of same-sex couples uh, as regards marriage as it, with uh, this issue of who gets listed as parents on birth certificates. And so reducing to the status of dicta the statement in Justice Kennedy's opinion in Obergefell uh, where he listed all the various things that go with the right to marriage, he mentioned birth and death certificates, you know, where spouses are identified and parents are identified and stuff. And it took a real stretch of... Uh, reasoning to avoid that explicit uh, explicit language in Obergefell, but she says, Obergefell did not address Arkansas's statutory framework regarding birth certificates either expressly or impliedly. 
So apparently because Justice Kennedy didn't cite the specific Arkansas statute here, she thinks there's it wasn't covered. And because Arkansas isn't in the Sixth Circuit, he would have no reason to because Arkansas wasn't a party to that right, case. Right, right. She also says a fair reading of the final order in the marriage litigation doesn't control here either because there was no specific mention of these birth certificate statutes. Um, so she moved on to a constitutional analysis and uh, she said, basically, uh, the primary purpose of the birth certificate uh, statutory framework is to name the biological mother and the biological father of the child truthfully. Um, she keeps using this biological nexus language. And she used an affidavit by someone from the Department of Health that talked about how, you know, a lot of people later on in life need to know about uh maybe family health issues that they've inherited genetically from uh, biological parents. And so this serves important public health uh, issues and criti it provides critical assistance to an individual's identification of personal health issues and genetic conditions. And, of course, it does that when uh, a married opposite-sex couple use an anonymous sperm donor. Then we know from the birth certificate who the father is, right? Yeah. The biological father? Nope. No. Um, so it involved a lot of sort of cognitive dissidence for her to to get to the conclusion here. But in other words, this is a political decision. Exactly. Okay. Um, so adding insult to injury, at the end of the decision, she uh, she and her the colleagues in the majority admonished the judge Fox for remarks he apparently made when uh, the the agency sought an emergency stay before the before the case was accepted on the merits. She said the gist of Judge Fox's remarks was that if this court granted the stay, then it would deprive persons of their constitutional rights, and that this court previously had deprived people of their constitutional rights in a separate matter. She's, the marriage case. Yes. Which Fox, I believe, was the trial judge for. There might be some form shopping in Arkansas, too, yes. for, for gay rights plaintiffs. Um, in the eyes of the majority, these comments were, were made to gain the attention of the press and to create public clamor and arguably undermine public confidence in the independence, integrity, and impartiality, not only of this court, but of the entire judiciary. In other words, the problem is that the remarks were true. <laughs> very, Most likely. Very damaging. Yes. So uh, there was some uh, positive news out of the dissents in terms of it's good to know that the three of the justices on the Arkansas Supreme Court saw this in a more uh, realistic way. Um, there were three separate dissents, one by the Chief Justice, who uh, quoted Bob Dylan and said, look, the times they are a-changing. We may not like this, but it's clear that there are same-sex couples having children in Arkansas, and there's, you know, it's sort of ridiculous that we can't uh, recognize that uh, and treat it seriously. Um, one of the other justices said that they, we, we really shouldn't have ruled on the on the merits of the constitutional issue here because the case is fluctuating and the, the Department of Health sort of changed its story in terms of how it was going to handle these after the case was filed. Um, and there was one justice that really gave a full uh, constitutional analysis where he agreed that there's really a constitutional problem here with treating opposite sex and same-sex couples completely differently. Um, now the question is whether, uh, you know, they, the couples here or the, uh, the attorney on the case decide to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. And there, there are developments there since uh, this issue of Law Notes was put to bed uh, over New Year's weekend. 
Uh, I have since read that the ACLU LGBT Rights Project, which uh, is involved in the case with the Arkansas ACLU, is planning to file a cert petition. Uh, so I think that there's a possibility this one will be presented to the Supreme Court. Whether they'll take it, we don't know. Uh, as uh, you pointed out in your article in Law Notes, there was a previous case involving a failure by a state to accord equal treatment to a same-sex married couple, uh, the VLVEL case about uh, the refusal of Alabama to afford full faith and credit to an out-of-state second parent adoption. Uh, and the Supreme Court... Uh, move with alacrity on that one. They get a cert petition, and rather than granting it, they issue a summary decision reversing the Alabama Supreme Court and saying, hey, guys, we said equal. <laughs> Do you understand what equal means? Equal means treat them the same as different sex couples. Yeah. Uh, although, actually, the, the focus there was on the full faith and credit clause and the fact that one state is not allowed to deny full faith and credit because they just disagree with the interpretation of Another the courts in the law. other state. Yeah. Um, so stay tuned. We may have another uh, another case going to the U.S. Supreme Court involving gay rights uh, soon. Well, more than that, we've got a cert petition on file for uh, the Colorado Marriage Baker case. Right, right, right. And just after the New Year's, uh, during the first week in January, we got a cert petition filed uh, out of the Ninth Circuit uh, from a case uh, that rejected a constitutional challenge to California's ban on conversion therapy for minors. Uh, arguing religious freedom, etc. Uh, I think one of the uh, plaintiffs in that case is a minister who also has a counseling license and wants to be able to counsel people who come to him for pastoral care in his health care guise uh, to uh, try to change their sexual orientation. So that, uh, that's going to be presented to the Supreme Court as well. And, of course, we're awaiting President-elect Trump's nominee for the right. Sca Justice Scalia seat. So a lot of – Let's not call it the Scalia seat. That's, that makes it sound like it should be someone like Scalia, which is what Trump says he wants to do. Sigh. So <laughs> uh, we'll take another short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing another disappointing development out of the South from December, this one out of Louisiana. We are back discussing a Louisiana judge declaring unconstitutional an executive order protecting LGBT state employees and contractors from discrimination. Can you tell us about it, Art? Yeah, this was uh, after uh, John Bell Edwards was elected, uh, took office uh, earlier this year. Uh, Governor Edwards uh, was a Democrat, is a Democrat, and he decided to take the uh, the traditional anti-discrimination executive order and expanded to include sexual orientation and gender identity and furthermore for the first time to require that contractors with the state of Louisiana not discriminate in their practices based on sexual orientation or gender identity. Uh, this in a state where there is no state law banning such discrimination uh, and the state constitution has not really been interpreted authoritatively by the Louisiana Supreme Court to prohibit such discrimination. There are anti-discrimination ordinances in a few Louisiana municipalities like New Orleans, Baton Rouge. Uh, so in any event, uh, the attorney general of the state, Jeff Landry, uh, who's, and, a Republican. who's a Republican, is an elected position, and the Department of Justice of the state filed a suit in state court 
in uh, the parish of East Baton Rouge, the 19th Judicial District, seeking an injunction against this executive order. Uh, they wound up before Judge Todd W. Hernandez, who issued a decision on December 14th in uh, joining the executive order. Uh, he found that the governor had exceeded his authority, and he reached this decision not by reliance on voluminous state precedents describing the scope of the governor's executive order powers, because there don't seem to be any, or at least none that were cited in the opinion. He goes on his own interpretation of the state constitution, he says that the governor, as chief executive officer of the state of Louisiana, shall see that the laws of this state are faithfully executed. And there's a statute which authorizes executive orders, which uh, the judge says the sole purpose for the issuance of an executive order is to provide the office of the governor with a mechanism to faithfully execute the laws of the state of Louisiana. So the judge says, since the laws of the state of Louisiana do not ban sexual orientation or gender identity discrimination, the government's authority to issue an executive order under this statute does not extend to forbidding such discrimination within the state government. Uh, now, he was paraphrasing the law. I decided it would be a good idea to look it up and see what it actually said. It says, the authority of the governor to see that the laws are faithfully executed by issuing executive orders is recognized. That's what it says. It doesn't say the laws of Louisiana. It just says the laws. Now, the laws would include federal law, which would include the 14th Amendment. And in 1996, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in Romer v. Evans that it violates the Equal Protection Clause for a state to single out for disadvantageous treatment LGBT people or at least lesbian and gay people, uh, transgender people, weren't on the radar in 1996 of the Supreme Court when they issued Romer. But I think the analysis follows. Uh, so I would say that any governor, since all governors, all governors, when they take their oath of office, swear to uphold and protect not only the state constitution and laws, but the constitution and laws of the United States. And therefore, if a governor is announcing a policy for the executive branch of their state with respect to employment practices, the federal equal protection clause, at the very least, if not also the state constitution's equivalent of that, would forbid unjustified discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. And so the executive order is merely stating, in a sense, solidifying a truism that under law, under U.S. Supreme Court precedent, the state will not discriminate based on sexual orientation and arguably gender identity. Uh, as to extending it to public contractors, uh, that's a bit more of a stretch. Uh, President Obama did it in a federal executive order, which uh, was heavily criticized by Republicans as going beyond his authority, and uh, we were anticipating that there would probably be some lawsuit challenging it but since uh, it is distinctly possible that uh, President Trump, when he takes office, will find on that pile of documents on his desk that he swears to sign the first day uh, an order rescinding Obama's uh, executive orders. We'll see if that happens. That's something to be on the, on the lookout for later in January. Uh, but in any event, I think that it, there's a good argument to be made that at least with respect to the personnel policies, 
of the state of Louisiana's executive branch, the governor's chief executive, can adopt the non-discrimination principle without violating his oath of office, without exceeding his authority, but uh, not according to the judge. But the governor did announce shortly after the opinion uh, was issued that he would appeal it uh, to a higher court. So we will expect further developments here in Louisiana. One funny thing I'll just note that I saw on several blogs, but people discovered that the uh, attorney general in Louisiana's brother is gay, and they yes. found him and sort of you know, he called his brother out for, for, for initiating this litigation. So he's yeah. Thanksgiving or Christmas might have been awkward in the Landry family. Yes. All right. We will take our last short break, and when we return for our Of Note segment, we'll update our listeners on the sad final chapter of the San Diego public nudity arrest saga. We are back to wrap up with our Of Note segment for this episode with a case we've talked about before over the years. Last month, the trial ordered by the Ninth Circuit after it revived a constitutional claim arising out of a 2011 public nudity arrest at San Diego Pride finally happened. Can you tell us what happened, Art? Okay. There was a jury trial. It actually was uh, somewhat extensive. There were uh, quite a few witnesses. Uh, This was the case of Will X. Walters, who, uh, when he went to uh, San Diego Pride in 2011, dressed up in his leather gear, uh, which he had worn previous times. Uh, although I, uh, since this uh, story came back in the news, I, I did some looking online and I found an interview that he did with a local television station in Southern California. And he said, uh, in light of uh, announcements that there might be enforcement if people expose too much skin, he actually went to a leather specialist to have a back flap added to his gladiator outfit so that his buttocks would be more covered than they'd been in the past. So he had worn this outfit to San Diego Pride in the past without any problem, really. He had adjusted the outfit to be a little more discreet. He shows up, and he gets arrested for public nudity. Uh, He probably wouldn't have been arrested if he hadn't responded somewhat obstreperously when a police officer came over and touched him and and said, you've got to cover up, buddy. And uh, he... He was outraged, uh, so uh, he sort of taunted the cop and maybe shoved him back, and he got arrested for public nudity, although I don't think he was eventually prosecuted. But he files in federal court claiming uh, discriminatory enforcement. He says that people wearing much less on the beach who are not obviously gay were not being arrested, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and uh, the federal district judges threw the case out, sort of laughed it out, and it went up to the Ninth Circuit which on April 5 of last year reversed and said he had a potential constitutional claim here and he was entitled to a trial. Uh, One would think that thus encouraged the city would offer a settlement and make the case go away, but instead they had a trial. I guess the the police chief was uh, rather indignant at the charge that her agency was discriminating based on sexual orientation. They considered themselves a reasonably gay-friendly city. And in fact, there was some evidence that the police cracked down uh, with the nudity ordinance was at the instigation of the San Diego Pride Committee, which wanted a more family-friendly <laughs> Pride Festival. And they thought that people were exposing too much skin and, you know, people wanted to bring kids. Uh, at any rate, uh, it's... I mean, it would be laughable if it didn't end in tragedy. All right, so on uh, December 13th, a federal jury in San Diego rejected Mr. Walter's claim, ruled against him, 
ruled in favor of the city, uh, leaving Walters with legal bills of a million dollars or more to pay. I mean, he'd been counting on the fact that under the uh, – there's a federal civil rights statute. If you prevail in a Section 1983 constitutional civil rights claim, you can get a, uh, an award of attorney's fees, and I think he was counting on that. Uh, the word is that he stormed out of the courtroom. He didn't even stop to make a statement. He was just shocked, totally shocked, uh, became incommunicado, and uh, finally friends, uh, a neighbor asked the police to check his apartment, hadn't heard anything, and he was discovered dead in his apartment on December 28th, just weeks after the jury verdict. Uh Police suspect suicide. I, I checked to see if there are subsequent news reports, and there haven't been, at least that have shown up on the Internet. Uh, but he ended it. And it's really kind of crazy. I mean, he's 35 years old, smart, articulate guy. Uh, on this TV interview, he comes across wonderfully. Uh, and it's just – it's such a shame. Uh, uh, one of the local – uh, newspapers, the San Diego Union Tribune, in reporting on the case, uh, had a quote from City Human Ra Relations Commissioner Nicole Murray Ramirez, who is one of the openly gay members on the City's Human Relations Commission, who said he was a young activist and many of us thought he had a bright future in our community and it's a loss to our community. So this is a, a case that actually inspired a lot of laughter in the early parts of the case. But now it's... Uh, it's a case that uh, brings great regret uh, that he perhaps pushed it too far, pushed it further than he should have. I, the police chief responding to the verdict said that the jury confirmed that our officers acted appropriately in the way they addressed the municipal code regarding nudity at special events throughout our city. Uh, so that's the bottom line on an unfortunate ending. All right. Well, that's all the time we have today. One quick plug, if you happen to be an attorney in the New York area and would like some free CLE credit, please join Art and I on Thursday, January 26th for our annual LGBT Law Year in Review CLE at the offices of Davis Polk. You can register on Legale's website. All right, thanks for listening. To read the latest issue of Law Notes, please become a member of Legale or a Law Notes subscriber by visiting www.le-gal.org. This and future podcasts can also be found online in iTunes or at legal.podbean.com. Please take a moment to give us lots of stars there if you like the podcast. Follow the gal on Twitter at LGBT Bar NY or like us on Facebook. Thanks again, and we will see you in February. <laughs>